He talks about his local coffee shop like he's the third place. And, and I thought, oh my gosh, I, I use my local coffee shop like that. I use um, my local park like that. Um, these places are critical to the well-being of communities. Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Sam Chowdhury. Sam is a planner based in Melbourne, Australia. She has worked in the public, private, and not-for-profit sectors of planning in the U.S. and Australia at scales ranging from the global to the neighborhood. She is also a board member of Main Street Australia. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks for having me. First off, how are you holding up during COVID-19? What's happening over there in Australia and personally for you? I might start with the personally first because I need to vent. Uh, no, it's 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 been challenging um, uh, to say the least. Um, we're entering uh, almost eight weeks of lockdown. Our restrictions just eased last week. Um, we've luckily, um, being such an isolated island, um, we haven't had a huge amount of cases. We've, uh, but you know, our our government got pretty strict as soon as a community transmission happened here. So. Um, it's been very challenging to, to, to homeschool my, my two kids, five-year-olds in um, equivalent of kindergarten. So, um, yeah, I, I've had to drop work and, and, and do that. And also I live in a multi-generational household. So I've got my mom, my sister, my brother-in-law as well living with us. So it's a full house and it's been hectic. So I think we're all getting to the point where cabin fever is... Um, is truly set in. <laughs> but, um, oh, yeah, look, everyone's in the same boat. So um, I'm, I'm grateful that we're about to, to go back to some version of normality very soon. And you had experienced a job transition or two that kind of got put on hold with the pandemic. Is that right? That's right. So um, I I left uh, an, my old role with uh, Co-Design Studio to start a new role and pretty much one month into the role, um, we had to um, reduce our hours significantly and um, luckily the government's had um, a stimulus package for employees. So um, there's been a, quite a widespread economic stimulus given to small businesses. So my employer was able to access that. So luckily um, I'm, I'm still getting paid um, for minimal hours and I'm not completely out of a job, but it's looking, um, it's not looking great for, for retail and, and the development industry right now. So, and, and there are thousands of people and so many people I know personally um, have had their jobs impacted. Um, I just heard the news last night, the Prime Minister announced that we've had, we're entering recession. Um, officially, we have 600,000 unemployed people in Australia, uh, 26% rate of unemployment, which is like ridiculously high. So it's going to be very challenging for the indefinite future for a while. Now, one person you didn't mention in your multi-general household, you're married to an architect, urban designer. I am. How is he holding up? How is his work? So he's, we've been fortunate. He's been quite busy and um, he has been working on a couple of big projects. So I feel like, you know, at least one of us is still trying try to see the positive. One of us still have a, a full-time role going and um, luckily uh, his company has been really um, proactive in in helping all their staff work remotely. Uh, well, yeah, he's grateful. I'm grateful that he's still employed. Well, and he's also from the U.S. So I wonder, do you talk shop a lot about planning the built environment and then what you've noticed is different between the two countries? Yeah, I guess we 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 chat about 
things like that all the time and we're always um, aware of what's going on um, back in the US and back in his hometown, even in Ohio. Um, you know, we've we actually met um, in New York studying at Columbia um, Urban Design, Urban planning program. So we, we, we met through school and, and common interests. And, and so, you know, the theme of our, our lives is, is that overlap of, of work and, um, our common interests. Um, I, and I, I, after spending so much time in the US too, like my, I have a, quite an interest in what's going on over there. And so, yeah, we, we, we talk all the time about what's going on in Columbus, what's going on in New York and what's going on in Chicago and San Fran. It, it comes up quite a lot. So you've lived twice in the United States, once while attending Columbia and then a couple year stint in Chicago. Um, and so you've, you know, been an immigrant yourself and seen what it's like to leave a home, come back to a home, be married to someone who's done it in reverse. Also, your parents immigrated from Bangladesh to Australia. So I'm just curious, how does the lived experience of two generations of immigrants influence how you plan for communities? Yeah, I guess it's been a huge part of my identity and um, career orientation. Um, you know, my parents are first-generation Australian Bangladeshi community, um, so uh, it made me realise from a very young age how important social connections and bonds were, especially being migrants and being from diverse backgrounds, being the first um, arrivals actually from the from the subcontinent because um, Australia, as progressive as we might sound to other people abroad, we had uh, terribly um, racist policies in the seventies called literally the white Australia policy. So only people from European backgrounds were allowed in the country. Um, so anyone from Asian or subcontinent or anywhere really weren't allowed to immigrate here. Um, so in the 1970s. Yes. When that law was overturned by the Prime Minister at the time, who was Gough Whitlam, a very progressive um, socialist, uh, Dad applied for immigration. He he was a marine engineer, so he worked on all the big, huge cargo ships around the world for all the big shipping companies. He was like the chief engineer on all of the ships, so he travelled extensively. He's been to every major port in the world. Uh, when he came here, he was so impressed by quality of life, but he couldn't move. He couldn't move. He went to school in London. Um, we had extended family living in New York um, in the early eighties, and after living in London and traveling, he, he he didn't really want to settle in London or New York, where most of my mum and dad's side of the family had immigrated to. So um, luckily, that policy changed, and then they started. Um, they settled here in the early eighties. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I, as going back to your question, um, it's, it's what sparked my interest in community development, planning, you know, knowing that you could actually be involved in making a difference in people's lives, um, you know, participatory planning and development obviously is a, you know, a subject, um, an actual, you know, a discipline, but I didn't know that it was something you could study. I didn't know that's something you could practice and, and, and do. So, um, all that idea of planning with the community and, um, collaboratively really appealed to me and, and, and influenced, um, yeah, where I, what I wanted to do and, and traveling and living in the U.S. Uh, made that even more apparent and clear because I realized there was so many different ways you could do it. Um, there's no right way to do it and everyone does planning differently. But um, definitely the theme of, of collaborative planning uh, came through quite strong when, when I had my time in New York and Chicago. So on that note, how would you compare planning in the U.S. and Australia? What's good? What do those countries have to learn from each other? Funny things you've noticed. We're curious to hear yeah. all of it. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll talk First about Australia, I guess um, yeah, Australia is a similar sort of um, political system to the UK. I mean, we have state planning policy. We have uh, neighbourhood level planning. Um, we have actually in our metropolitan city area, we have 
31 metropolitan councils. So in the size of a city, the city of Chicago's municipal area, there are 31 councils. And in the whole of the state, there are 79. So um, it, you know, and each council covers anywhere from 10 to 20 neighborhoods. So they have their own mayor, they have their own elected councillors, then they have their own planning, urban design, landscape, community social planning departments. So that just gives you an idea of how, um, I guess it's just very varied. So you each neighbourhood to neighbourhood, you notice quite clearly that it's a different, there's different planning because things look different. Um, there's generally obviously zoning and stuff is pretty uh, universal across states. Um, the state implement the planning controls, but council to council, individual at a local level, things are applied differently. Um, and that means just doing anything is really hard. And especially when you have um, so many people, so many layers of permits and process. So I think at a local level, people here generally find it very, um, there's a lot of red tape. People feel very um, um, disabled to to do things proactively and they actually are quite apathetic. So they just sort of Oh, council will do it. You know, council will do it. Um, so when I first started sort of studying planning and realize and liking this like idea of community engagement and stuff, I thought, oh, great. There's so many, so many councils, so many jobs. I could get a great job and then realized no one really wanted to do it. <laughs> it was very much some of the small regional towns where there's a lot more, like they're a lot more enabled and active citizens, but in the city, in the inner urban neighbourhoods, it was impossible. Um, So I kind of had a bit of a a culture shock (laughs) um, realising that it wasn't as widely um, implemented or used and that the planners were in control. The director of planning was in control and, you know, and there'd just be a few of the loud voices that, you know, local neighbourhood voices that would come and do, come to town hall meetings and things like that. So when I got to the States, I I guess um, I I noticed that, you know, there's less government and and the onus falls on people in the community. And I know that's not great for keeping up the city and your parks and infrastructure, but it's really good for citizen-led action. So that creates a culture of enablement. And I actually wrote a blog about that um, just after I moved back from Chicago um, because it was so apparent after working um, with the Wicker Park Chamber of Commerce as well. So um, I, I noticed that we didn't have issues that were obviously as uh, as deep and entrenched as some um, of the cities in the US. So we we have less classism and class issues here. We have don't have as deeply rooted problems um, in terms of socioeconomic and race and things like that. But we just it was so obvious. We just don't have you don't see the fingerprints of the community on neighbourhoods. It's a little bit like everything's a little bit sterile. Big topics in the U.S. planning profession. Uh, We hear a lot about engagement, um, a lot of people coming around to understanding issues of equity. What are those conversations like or what does it look like in Australia? The conversations around um, equity... Uh, inclusion, we use the word inclusion a little bit more here. Um, that's definitely becoming a more important and uh, focused topic for planning and development. I think we're certainly much more aware of um, including people from non-English speaking backgrounds, culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. So um, most engagement that I have worked on um, in those really heavily multicultural, diverse neighbourhoods, everything is translated in the, the main languages that those communities speak everything from having interpreters present, um, being uh, yeah, highly sensitive of the differences in um, not only language but um, their resources and their socioeconomic kind of level because um, I actually worked for a council in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, which is one of the largest um, populations of people from Turkish and Middle Eastern, so Egyptian, Syrian, a lot of refugees from Syria 
settle there. So you're thinking like, okay, we're going to do an engagement about an open space or a streetscape upgrade. Um, we want the community to come out and share their ideas and then nobody turns up. Um, you, these, some of these communities have like left some of, the, some of the most horrific places in the world where they have been so ill-treated by their own government. So there's a lack of trust. There's a lack of engagement. Many people are are either working full-time jobs or, or, or just can't access, can't get to the location. So, you know, our planning team and our community development team, you know, were very aware of these issues and did a lot to try and start from like basics. So the community team was always doing capacity building and strengths-based community building or asset-based community building. So really looking at who were the like key champions in those neighbourhoods and areas, those would be the people we call upon. Like, for example, the local imam at the mosque or the local um, someone who was, you know, quite trusted by the community, engaging with that person rather than trying to get a good turnout from everyone. Um, so uh, one of the projects I did was in a neighbourhood called Broad Meadows and it was to upgrade the little um, little shopping mall that was there. And um, we actually just spoke to all the traders and um, the business owners and asked them, um, if they could um, put on some tea and um, baklava and we, um, instead of any of the engagement being with post-it notes and workshopping kind of in that fashion, everything was visual. So we tried to, to like strip away confusing language because if you're talking about streetscape and design, it's just we just wanted to make it, yeah, super accessible. So we used a lot of visual images and references traditional to all of those areas where people are from, um, Turkey, uh, Syria, Iraq. We had everything in Arabic. We had Arabic translators there. Um, we put on food and we had a, like, a bit of a street party and it was kid-friendly and we had a lot better turnout. Um, and we did it when we knew that the mosque, it was for Friday prayers, so we knew that'd be a good turn. So we, you know, and, and someone, um, you know, being from a cultural um, background and understanding the layer of um, the, the movement of the day of people in that community a little bit more than, say, someone else who didn't come from that background or hadn't had experience working with those communities, um, I felt like, we definitely tried a little harder than the usual. And I think I've had to, as being one of the only minority people in my industry for a long time and female, I've had to call people out a lot on that. I'm like, have you thought about this? Have you invited that person? And, I, you know, it's unfortunately the same case here in Australia. It's always an older white male in the room that I'm talking to saying this to. So, <laughs> so it was, I think people found me refreshing and like, oh, she's got some value to add. <laughs> so the two countries are on that same journey together. Absolutely. Absolutely. My manager loved me for that because he was like, thank God we have you on our team. Cause you know, and, and I guess you don't, no, until you are put in that position like you don't know that people don't understand things and they don't under they don't they've never been asked to participate in something to do with councils before so you got to strip it right back to basics like and you forget planning jargon is terrible like you can't understand that stuff even as a normal educated white person <laughs> so well that's a a great story to share about trying again if you didn't quite get it right the first time and um, making sure the team has cultural competency. Yeah, absolutely. So you did neighborhood level economic development in the Bucktown Wicker Park neighborhoods of Chicago. Mm -hmm. I'm curious um, what you found rewarding and challenging about that work. Um, so working with the Wicker Park Chamber of Commerce as the special service area um, uh, managing director was uh, an amazing experience. Um, I found it the, the most rewarding part of it was um, getting to know the neighbourhood, all the businesses, the business owners and the local characters <laughs> um, and 
um, I kind of came in at after it had been the, the the SSA had been running for ten years, so there'd been time for these um, key uh, members in the in the business community to sort of build that relationship with the chamber, with with, with other business owners. Um, the commissioners uh, were very passionate about the neighbourhood, and I guess one of the things that I, I liked the most was um, the, the only way you could be a commissioner or be involved um, on the committee was to be a local business owner. So the fact that local people are making na- decisions about their own, you know, areas, their own local neighbourhood um, was was amazing because people were. People had so much passion and insight. Um, the care and the, the pride was really strong. Um, I loved um, getting to know everyone and I felt like I knew the whole neighbourhood very quickly and I had to because it was part of my role to understand who's who. Um, I also feel like I needed to hide from certain people too. <laughs> it got to a point I, I only got to be there for eight months before I had to unfortunately move back to Australia. But um, you, you definitely uh, get to know all the all the sides of people and um, the loudest voices. And so I think that, that can be challenging. People who aren't used to, uh, th- there's challenges around innovating um, and trying to change things and there was a resistance to certain types of initiatives and doing things differently. Uh, it was also hard to engage new people to join the committees and or get them to stay. Um, and people who are long-term commissioners said it was harder and harder as um, the demographic of the area changed. So as people are more transient in, in the area, coming through, moving to the suburbs, there was just not the um, sort of long involved um, members anymore. And so I think that wasn't unique to Wicker Park or Bucktown. I think that a lot of inner city neighbourhoods are probably experiencing that challenge as well um, with the demographic change. But it's important that that you got the right people who were uh, committed long term to overseeing and managing a neighbourhood uh, rather than um, having people churning through and, and and not really having that attachment to to the place. And, you know, I live in the Bucktown neighbourhood, so I'm quite familiar with the neighbourhood. And personally, I welcome a lot of the changes you guys worked on, especially in the name of walkability and bikeability. Um, I think one thing that's really great about the neighbourhood is what we in our planner jargon talk about as third places, Um, places where people come together, you know, not necessarily home or work, but providing those opportunities for community to happen. And I know your work in this realm um, started before and has continued on past your time with Wicker Park Neighborhood, but tell us about your experience uh, involved in that. Oh, it's something I'm super passionate about and, um, have written and done yet yeah, work as ex- extensively on as you mentioned and um i think the uh concept of the sticky place or third place um actually started um at sort of beginning of my career as a grad when i started working at a placemaking consultancy here in Melbourne called Village Well. Um, it was the first time I sort of understood the concept of placemaking, third place, and a lot of it was around um, working with actually retail developers who who wanted to sort of change the idea of mall, like a shopping centre. Um, you know, I, I had read um, a, the book um, Third Place. Uh, I can't remember the author now. It but he he talks about his local coffee shop like he's the third place and and I thought oh my gosh I I use my local coffee shop like that I use um, my local park like that um, these places are critical to the well being of communities like um, so the more and more um, work I did was around how do we do this with existing places 
Uh, how can we retrofit places, um, whether it be public realm, whether it's the main street, whether it is within a mall, um, the foyer of an office building, for example. Um, so, and, and providing, you know, almost like a journey for people when they're in their walking, uh, when they're in their journey around their neighbourhood uh, to go shopping or to go to work, how, how can someone's journey include those touch points uh, because the research shows these type of places are are critical to people's health and well-being, particularly in like very dense cities. So where there is, people don't have their own uh, private open space or, or have access to it. So um, I guess that, that term placemaking in general has become the theme of my career. I started off as a more traditional town planner and working for a city, doing permits and planning applications and DAs and things like that. But then once I started um, understanding that there was this different way of doing things and working, also my understanding of space, so like how ownership of space completely predicates how it's used. So I then was super interested in working more with, with council, with government, because the, their public spaces owned and designed for the public, uh, and and by law you had to do a lot of engagement around any design of of this stuff. So I felt that you know empowering people who use that space to come up with the design of it, and then talking to the local businesses and community and getting them involved. Like I just became addicted to that type of work because it was so satisfying, fulfilling, um, seeing how people felt like they could make a difference and make a, influence in the, the design of an area. Um, and then that now flowing into the even private sector work, um, which <laughs> has been interesting because um, there aren't as many layers of um, uh, issues around uh, requirements are different for private owners. Um, their motivation is slightly different. They, they're looking for, for getting good tenants, for high foot traffic, for, um, uh, spend. Um, but the outcome is the same. They want people to form an attachment to place. And if people form an attachment to place, they linger there, they dwell there, they spend time. It's That's the universal thing. People will not spend time in a place that isn't aesthetically beautiful, has shelter, has um, a green um, landscaping, um, has uh, sunlight. So those qualities have been quite universal in both the public and private sector work. Uh, management of it obviously is quite different because you have either the council looking after it or then you have like a body corporate, uh, owner's corporation or a, um, a private developer looking after it. But, um, yeah, I've been more and more interested in that public space versus privately owned space debate and, and you know, the sensitivities around it and how it can be quite contentious and, New York, I believe, has some of the most, the highest number of privately owned public spaces in any city. And half of the time, people don't know that they're privately owned, like Bryan Park and Madison Square Park. They're all privately owned and highly successful public spaces. So that leads me to something I wanted to ask you about. I think planners forget sometimes or aren't even trained in the role and importance of management. And what I mean there is, so you were an SSA manager, which is what Chicago calls uh, its business improvement districts or bids. And what makes it work is there's a dedicated source of funding and local control. Um, And sometimes when I'm explaining what a bid or an SSA is to people, I say it's a lot like at the shopping mall, every tenant pays what we call CAM, Common Area Maintenance, I Mm -hmm. think it stands for. So they chip in for a marketing budget, for landscaping, for the music to play, for the security guards. And an SSA or a bid just allows that to happen in an urban environment. And so we can do all the planning we want. But if there isn't the money and there isn't thoughtful uh, management, you know, it's not worth much. Oh, absolutely. Exactly. And that's why that, that way of management and that thinking, I feel like, 
government and municipal councils need to learn a lot from that and and understand that bids or SSAs are are actually right now during COVID critical because you need someone who can manage, take leadership during a time like this. Uh, I've noticed our main streets that have um, the special levies that that's collected. So our equivalent of like an SSA is just a, a an association. Um, so they're formed and then they collect that, that special rate from the businesses who have to, um, similarly to how you, you sign up to be an SSA, they all have to agree. I think 50% of the businesses need to agree to it. Those main streets, I have seen the president of the association going around talking to all the like, you know, how can we help you? What do you need? Do you need a grant? Are you open or are you in hibernation? I, re- I recently just uh, drove down one of the main streets and they had produced these uh, large stickers, like a huge circle stickers that, that say, we're open for business as usual. We're only online. We're hibernating. We'll see you on the other side. Huge in bright orange so that when you're driving down that main street, you can see which ones are open or closed or even if you're walking. And just stuff like that, like simple stuff like that or getting businesses that haven't had any online or digital presence or any way of doing that, helping them get on, helping them just see if they're okay. And so um, I actually sit on the Main Street Australia board. So I've been involved in a lot of the conversations and advocacy around how we help a lot of these associations. And um, at a time like this, I have never seen the importance of it more than um, more than now. And um, I think that needs to be a lot more um, government, like from the state level support to, to increase the amount of special service area bids in, in Australia, in Melbourne. Um, because without that type of person leading or championing or having a, a, a business community around it, um, you, you see what happens to main streets and areas. They deteriorate, they decay, they have high va- vacancies, they lose their appeal. Um, people start to move away from them. It's a sad story. Um, uh, and it's happening all over the world in small and medium sized communities. It's, but it's very, very apparent in the bigger cities. Like, uh, when I went to New York recently, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, I was devastated to see even some of the, what has happened in the village and what's happened in, you know, some of the most amazing, vibrant, neighborhoods are just it's just all empty shop fronts nothing going on there um coming back to melbourne after even two years away half of the main street that's my local area is empty so um yeah it's really really important the management to me is the number one um we here call it place governance and it is just the number one thing around um managing of a place So you mentioned your time in New York. Um, If I recall correctly, you interned or worked as a young professional with the Project for Public Spaces, which is well known and loved here in the U.S. Um, Tell us about some of the efforts there and also during your time at Co-Design Studio in Melbourne. Sure. Um, I was lucky to be um, to, to get an internship with PPS while I was studying at Columbia. Um, my boss and founder of Village Well, Gilbert Rochecourt, was um, quite good friends with uh, Ethan Kent from PPS and um, sort of set up a uh, time for me to, to do some work with them, uh, which was fantastic. I got to work with their public markets um, program organize one of their uh, events um, and also participate in one of the programs that they do like how to create successful markets um, which was really really awesome I I love the markets that happen in Union Square and and was able to help um, guide a tour around some of the best public markets in New York um, and it was yeah it was great exposure to me um, sort of early on in my career about how important public space was and and New York having so much of it and 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 it being critical to the well-being and, and lives of New Yorkers generally I realized the value of public space was 
or the way it's used there is, is just so important. Um, whereas, you know, from coming from Melbourne where everyone sort of has access to some sort of quality open space, park, people have backyards, it's a, it's a much, it's a very different, uh, typology in terms of neighborhoods and, and built forms. So, I started to think when Melbourne gets denser and more populated, it's going to be really important that these um, this way of thinking starts to apply and that is involving people in the design and shaping of place. And so seeing it happen there in New York really opened my eyes up and then um, helped me sort of apply that approach um, back at Village Well when, when I returned and then sort of set me off on that career path, um, as I'd mentioned before, about placemaking. And so uh, I actually wanted to do a bit more time at, in, in local government to, to really understand how it works um, from in the public sector sense. And I found it really challenging to try and get placemaking to, to facilitate that process there because of the layers of bureaucracy and the realizing that one little pl- block of land is is managed and um needed so many decisions so many people um simple project like urban gardening or you know using underutilized nature strips for urban agriculture that project took so long to get um get going um because people in the property team were like oh you can't do that <laughs> you know this what xyz and stuff about public liability insurance and what if someone trips on one of the planter boxes and I was just oh it was it was a learning process I had never I didn't know I was very ignorant so here I was trying to do parking day and come up with like all these fun ideas to do with the community um and it was it was near impossible being inside council to do it um the checks and balances I needed to do was very paralyzing and I I started to get a little bit um resentful (laughs) and I wanted to go back into the private sector (laughs) So that's what I did. So um, following from that part of my career, I did move to the States and, and had my time over there. And um, But then coming back to, to Melbourne, I decided I still wanted to be involved in that type of work. So I, I joined um, Co-Design Studio, a placemaking practice here in and, and managed the studio. Um, and it was a great experience. We, we worked with um, an incredibly diverse amount of communities and locations. We did everything from uh, pedest- helping pedestrianize uh, a neighborhood that had a lot of uh, pedestrian accidents and um, cycling accidents, so uh, engagement around how to make it safer, um, and to you know working with big foreign investors who own big shopping centers and malls on how to create a more uh, people oriented places. So um, our engagement approach and methodology was always people have to be involved in the the place. So so. We utilised a lot of what PPS do and and use their um, free resources. Um, We also have created a a lot of our own free resources so people can um, do this stuff themselves. So um, on on Co-Design's website they have a lot of um, guides and toolkits for how you can create change and improve your own neighbourhood. So, yeah, it's been a great journey. So you've traveled quite a bit. I'm wondering if you have a favorite city or want to share some of the differences between Melbourne, Chicago, New York, anything in that realm, since many of our listeners are city lovers as well. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's so tough. Oh, my goodness. Asking a, a, an urbanist what the favorite your favorite city is, um, particularly if someone like me who's lived in both both sides of the world. Um Oh, I'd say like it's hard for me to choose between Melbourne, Chicago, New York. I, I, I really, I can't pick one. Um, obviously, I live in Melbourne. I'm from Melbourne, so this is home, home. But it's funny, like Chicago was very comfortable, familiar. Um, 
I, I met one of the planners there who uh, worked with the alderman and he said that he was one of the only people I had met in Chicago who had been to Melbourne and he said he described Melbourne as if if Chicago and Paris had a baby, it would be Melbourne. <laughs> so Melbourne has a very European vibe to it. We have um, one of the most extensive street car networks in the world. So our trams are pretty much the the number one way people get around here. Um, the network is like hundreds of miles long. So, and, and, and because of that, that the main streets and the, you, you know, the way that neighborhoods are built around um, a streetcar, it means that the scale of it is very human scale. So you have a feel of it. You could be in any part um, of Melbourne and there's this fantastic, beautiful, historic main street that was built around that streetcar, even though there's like high-rise development and lots of not very palatable mixed-use development happening everywhere, um, it has that has that fine grain, um, human scale um, element to it. Uh, Chicago, the neighborhoods were my favorite, to be honest. The, the, how, the, the, all the little beautiful brick. I miss walking around Bucktown and Wicker Park and seeing all that beautiful architecture. And I think, um, it's almost like people in Chicago took it, take it for granted because it, it was probably one of the most beautiful neighborhoods. Um, one of many, but beautiful neighborhoods in, in Chicago. And then New York is just this crazy, place it's kind of like <laughs> crack <laughs> it's like you want to you want it but then it, you can't you can't have it for too long and I guess being there while I was a student and falling in love it was like a dream but like to contemplate living there right now with with young kids I, I could not think of anything worse I'm sorry if I'm offending New Yorkers with people with children but I just after feeling like I've been able to get space and just a little bit space. I'm not talking single families, you know, like a single family home in the burbs. Like <laughs> I still live in a very urban part of Melbourne, but having that room to wriggle around has been, it's been great. Um, and I'd have to add actually Columbus, Ohio. Um, my husband will be very happy, but I've spent so much time in Columbus. It's I've really grown to like love it. Um, it has these beautiful historic neighborhoods, the short north, um, and it, it's doing a whole bunch of work downtown to bring people back to downtown because it totally had that donut city thing happen where everyone just left to the birds. Um, but I've I've seen, as I mentioned before, we we follow what's going on back there a lot and. Um, I've really been quite um, impressed by the work that the, both the municipal council and then the other um, suburban councils have been doing. But, I, you know, I've spent so much time in these cities, so they do feel like a second home. Um, I recently went back to my motherland, to Bangladesh and to Dhaka City, which is the most densely populated city in the world. So... Going back there, I was just extremely, again, impressed by um, the infrastructure that has now happened because um, after China, Bangladesh is now the second biggest clothing exporter in the world. So there's money in Bangladesh now. So they've now started to spend money on public transport and improving the sidewalks and parks and and so this city that, you know, for many years, it, it is a developing city and developing country, but um, seeing placemaking happening there, I was just floored. I was so happy, excited to see this happening, interest from um, the planning and architecture profession, um, just spending that brief time there. So, yeah, I'd have to add Taka. It's like one of those amazing, crazy, it's like you're on a different planet. Just it's so buzzing with street vendors and people and rickshaws and, you know, so the scale of it is even though it's so dense, it's ama it's amazing how many people can move around and live their lives. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I love the diversity in the yeah, you no. shared with you, us. I, I can't I can't pick a favorite each of them have their pros and cons but 
Yeah. So as we wrap up our conversation, which has been great, by the way, um, curious what you think the field of planning is getting right these days. What inspires you? So I think engagement and the way that it is um, innovating and changing to not just be better in terms of making it purposeful, fun, uh, culturally and linguistically, like serving those communities, serving low-income communities, um, but that 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 merge, um, that shift to digital has been incredible um, to be able to allow people um, now it doesn't matter about geography. You can be involved in any type of neighbourhood to city shaping project. Uh, I think in the examples I've seen in all the cities I've lived in, people are doing that better and better. Um, and I find that really inspiring. And what would you like to see happening more in the field of planning? I would like to see... I guess some of the more complex stuff around planning become easier to understand um, for just just for general any person to really understand that language. I think it's still quite overwhelming for people to to turn up at a, the planning counter at the council to to do things um, to making it even more accessible, um, whether it be through language, whether it be through just good communications um, and making it fun. I think it, it also can be so bogged down in um, plan is speak and and also projects are, long-term projects are hard for communities to wrap around, right? So master planning and, you know, a comprehensive plan, uh, th- these things are so hard for communities to wrap around. They often have 5, 10, 20-year lives um we need to stop doing that those types of plans it has to be small bite-sized look the planners and the people up in the city can kind of have they need to have a vision they need to have a long-term goal and they need to constantly be doing those demographic uh, projections um but now we can capture data in a way that is never been done before right so we can have real-time data on what people are doing how they're moving about what places they like what places they don't like that data is all accessible to people to to companies to count cities now so we don't need to wait for the census anymore right like we've got stuff real time and we need to be using that instead of waiting and to make these like policy decisions, infrastructure decisions that cost billions of dollars. And then you get, you finish that project. And then all of a sudden that infrastructure is already at capacity. Those trains, those train lines you planned is already at capacity because some cities, especially Australian cities are, their populations are growing exponentially. I mean, we are, Melbourne is going to be at 8 million in 2050. And I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) how is our city currently going to cope with that type of population projection when our roads are already congested and at capacity? Public transport, you cannot get on the trains here. Trams are packed at peak hour. So I, I, I don't know. I think there needs to be a different approach in terms of how, what data they're collecting and just 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 planning smarter. I, obviously, these projects get wrapped up in political agendas, so that needs to be addressed. So, yeah. It's been so interesting to hear the similarities and the differences between the U.S. and Australia. Um, I've loved following your work and seeing what you're doing Um if listeners want to learn more about your work, where can they go and um, who might you point them to, those individuals or organizations that inspire you? Sure. Um, I'll start with the people that have inspired me and who I've been following lately of late. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Jeff Siegler from Pittsburgh, but his company, he's a founder of Revitalize or Die, and his language is very strong and powerful, and he's all about just saying it like it is. And um, I think that after being in the industry for 15 years and people kind of walking around eggshells about what you need and not don't need. He's all about apathy kills towns, apathy kills main streets. So he's all about addressing apathy. And to me, that is one of the biggest problems about all of this is like, how do you kill a main street? 
you don't care about it. How do you how do you kill a whole town? And and so he's been doing a lot of work. I think he's from originally from Lima in Ohio, but he's in Pittsburgh now and he's been doing work all over the country. And I just like that he's just like no bull like it's just <laughs> this is what it is. Um I loved uh, Jamal from My Hood, My Block, My City, what he, he was doing. Like, whilst I was in Chicago, I found him very inspiring to see what he was doing with young people there and just getting them to sort of understand the, the city and the neighbourhoods and and how important that is about, like, you know, for a generation of, of youth, you know, to understand your surroundings and your built environment and how you can make a difference. I think that's been a, his work is yeah quite inspirational. Um, Jason Roberts from Better Block in Dallas, um, the work that he's been doing for the last decade and um, is, is amazing with looking at crime prevention through environmental design but a bit differently, a bit more inspiring. Um, and then I guess the work that um, Co-Design Studios, um, open source sort of stuff, the neighbourhood program, um, citizen-led placemaking, the, the open sources that are on their website are great. Um, they're about to do a porch placemaking week in a couple of weeks. So um, I'd, I'd suggest people go on the Facebook page and and show during this time where is when we're in isolation and can't are still practicing social distancing, um, how we can all get together and use our porches, balconies, driveways, laneways to to um, engage um, with our neighbourhood. Um, so I'm planning to do a bit of a, a chalk activity with my kids in our in our driveway. Yeah, my um, staff. Yeah. I didn't even prompt them, but my staff is very excited about porch placemaking and they've um developed a robust plan for us to be involved so see how it spreads oh that's amazing yeah. I'll have to tell Lucinda that's great that is great um and then I guess yeah finally for me like I I'm now working in the private sector um only um from keen interest but also a bit of work-life balance um with Brickfields Consulting um and we do lots of um our processes and methodologies are very similar to what um, most people in the sort of placemaking world do, but we use a lot of quantitative and qualitative data to inform our visions and, and understanding place. And so we work a lot with the commercial sector. So um, we have we have some really um, great little videos and things on our website. So you should check out brickfields.com and then um, I guess go on my LinkedIn. Um, it's got all, all the different types of projects and things I've worked on. And if anyone wants to reach out or ask me any questions, um, feel free to email me. Well, thanks for the shout outs, the conversation. I really appreciate having you on the podcast today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org.